Welcome to episode 16 of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll continue our discussion on the book of Numbers. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let's start with Numbers 11. I'm going to read Numbers 11, 1 through 6, starting with... And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing the cucumbers and melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So this right here actually rang a bell with me as far as today, Um, especially today. So, I mean, all they had was manna. And for us, we have so much more, and we still— we still complain about what we don't have so mm-hmm. so more often than we thank the Lord for, for what we do have. So my question is, is it safe to say that the Israelites are dealing with the same sort of discontentment that we may be facing today uh, in our in our American or our modern day? Yeah, absolutely. To, uh, to quote from a later book, uh, Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, right. Right. Human nature has not changed. Uh, there are two options, right? You're either in Christ or you're in Adam, and all of us are born in Adam. And mm. certainly those times when we are expressing frustration, uh, in gratitude, uh, we're expressing the nature of humanity that is fallen. Uh, we are created for the praise of God, and certainly uh, we see that uh, Israel is expressing something that's common to humanity. And this idea of contentment certainly something we're thinking about in uh, 1 Timothy as well. As so a 1 Timothy 6, just uh, this is our passage we'll be looking at this week in, in Sunday service, where it says, Godliness with contentment mm. is great gain. Right. right, it's a correction to the thought that uh, that godliness is a means of gain. Right, as though I'm going to act and do what God wants so that I can get something. Uh, it says, no, no, no. It's godliness with contentment that is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world; we content cannot take anything out of the world. And kind of echoes what Job will speak of. Right? right, that there's nothing that we bring into this world, nothing we can take out of this world, uh, but rather our contentment is in the Lord. And really the contentment with what he gives to us, what he provides for us, mm. right? Jesus' words in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, food, clothing. These are things we can trust him with. Mm. Uh, maybe that comes with the plenty or maybe that comes with scarcity. Um, but contentment is certainly um, an, a virtue and an attribute of the believer. And it's one we have to learn, uh, but it's certainly something that we are called to do in Christ. And when we read in Numbers, their grumbling and their desires, it's like, yeah, this really does relate to ourselves today. Yeah. Is it even possible to have long-lasting contentment outside of Christ? No. Long-lasting contentment outside of Christ? Definitely not. Right. Um, Again, I mean, the reality is, is that we are physical beings, right? We wake up in the morning and... uh, 
Uh, we need to brush our teeth. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to we need to eat some food. We need to drink some water. Uh, we have physical needs that are there. Going again to First Timothy six, I think we are to learn that as long as our basic provisions are provided. Uh, that we can be content in those. And mm. again, the Lord is kind. He is a father who loves to lavish good gifts on his children. Uh, and we've experienced that. And yet in his wisdom and in his instruction and in his discipline, he also takes those away at times. Uh, and throughout all of that, again, the plenty and the scarcity, we can trust that he is working these good things so that at the end of our lives, at the end of the day, we will say that uh, the nearness of God is my good. Right. Psalm 73, right? That Christ is my sufficiency. He is my life. And so in this way, if we lose everything we have him, we can still rejoice. Uh, if we get the whole world and forfeit our souls and we don't have Christ, we lose it all. Uh, so I think, you know, when we think about contentment, it is to find our contentment in the Lord and then to trust him uh, for our physical provisions that we certainly need because he's made us to be people who have those needs. Sometimes I think we forget that our great gift is salvation. Hmm. And like you said, as long as we have Christ and as long as we have that salvation, Mm -hmm. that is sufficient because this is such a temporal, a short time that we're here on earth, but eternity is unimaginable. It's even hard to define, you know, because in our finite lives, we can define it, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to, to really grasp. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of just allowing the Word of God to renew our minds. Right. How how tempting it is for us to be um, like Esau, right? Mm. To sell our birthright for a a bowl of stew. Right, yeah. I just want to get what I want right now. I don't care about tomorrow. I don't care a year from now. I care 10 years from now. And yet Scripture teaches us to think with the long view in mind, Mm -hmm. and it teaches us to think, to have an eternal perspective. And when that happens, just like you said, uh, when that gift of salvation is our cornerstone and our Mm -hmm. everything, it changes how we walk through the trials of life. Yep. I want to jump down to verses 16 and 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So currently, in our Sunday morning sermons, we are learning about elders, deacons, and the roles that they play in the body of Christ. What is the reason that God appointed elders to help Moses? And do we see this structure of elders in the New Testament? Yeah, absolutely. So lots of different things to think about there. Um, The elders go back to at least Exodus 18, Mm -hmm. uh, when Moses is dealing with all the people, all the problems, all the needs that are there. And Jethro, his very wise father-in-law, comes and says, Moses, you can't do this. It's going to kill you. Right. And um, so at that point, they... Appoint, he appoints, he encourages Moses to appoint, I should say, um, others to help him, mm-hmm. right? And so they look for uh, faithful, God-fearing men who will not take a bribe, uh, who will be honest and full of integrity. And when they did that, they began to place chiefs over the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So it puts up a structure in the community there. If we remember that the people of Israel were a million or two million uh, in number. Uh, Moses couldn't do all of that. Right. And there needed to be other judges and other chiefs and other uh, people to help him with that. These were the elders. Um, so certainly in the nation of 
Israel throughout their history. There would be elders who are a part of that in local towns, and uh, then the Sanhedrin would mm-hmm. be kind of the, the elders for the nation of Israel. When we come to the New Testament, this idea of elders would have been ingrained in the Jewish people who are coming uh, to faith in Christ. Uh, and so it has the idea of a family, right. uh, that these are the elders, um, and really I want to say the elder brothers in the church. Uh, you might say the fathers. In Israel, it was the fathers who were the heads of the people, mm-hmm. right? But in the church, it's far better to see that there's one father mm-hmm. uh, in heaven and that we are brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, uh, and that together in the church, the elders are not fathers, but they are elder brothers. Right, yeah. Right? And I think that protects us from even some of the abuses of power mm. um, that are in the church when we conceive of spiritual leaders as fathers. No, they're elder brothers walking on the same path, maybe a few steps ahead, hopefully models of godliness and teaching and all the rest. Um, and it seems that in the New Testament, this is the model that God gives. Not that there would be one pastor or one elder uh, in a congregation, but a plurality of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, if a church starts and begins and there's only one qualified man, good. But that man should be looking for others and training others to join him in that work so that like in Israel, you have a plurality of elders who are shepherding the people uh, that God has gathered together. Yeah. So on a side note, I personally have witnessed in church the the congregation mm-hmm. calling, especially the women and the young ladies calling the pastor daddy oh, wow. and father yeah. and in a sense. And, and I'm sure I can't remember the scripture off the top of my head, but there is a scripture that says, call no man father, um, but the father who is in heaven. Yeah. Um, and in that context, he's speaking of within, within the church, because obviously we are all born um, from a man who is our physical father. Sure. But I've always believed that that verse was speaking of spiritual father yeah that's absolutely right so if you look in uh in matthew 23 right uh it speaks of the fact that there is only one father and he is in heaven right um right so it says in in matthew 23 uh verse 8 but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Right. And you're exactly right, because it's talking not about physical fathers, but a spiritual father who is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he goes on, it says, neither should you be called instructors, for you have one instructor, uh, the Christ, the greatest among you must be your servant. So just reminds us how easy it is uh, for different names and titles to just get misplaced yeah. along the way. And scripture just continues to, to renew our minds in those ways. Yeah, so I have two comments about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we talk about titles, Mm. Uh, one of the things that I think is a is a point of confusion is that today we have taken seemingly what the Bible meant to be synonymous mm-hmm. words like pastor, elder, bishop, yeah. and we've elevated, for example, bishop mm-hmm. um, to be something that I don't believe that the Bible intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so bishop is the English translation of the word episkopos, right? Mm-hmm. So Episcopalian Church gets the same language from that. And uh, yeah, I would definitely make the case that um, uh, overseer might be a better translation of that. It makes more sense to us today. Right. Uh, an overseer, uh, an elder is one who oversees, right? An overseer is one who pastors. Like, those are synonymous terms. They have different connotations, right? Again, elder comes from the family. Mm-hmm. Overseer comes with the task of, of caring for and overseeing the flock. A pastor is one who feeds and guards 
just like a shepherd does. Right. right? So each of those are, are important, but I would say, I would argue from the New Testament that they are uh, synonymous office uh, that is there. Church history may help us here. In the very beginning of the church, second century, third century in particular, you begin to see this differentiation. Right. Whereas there were elders who are appointed in local churches, that what Paul speaks of in Acts 14.23, um, in the early centuries of the church, we begin to see this uh, hierarchy uh, that is being developed. Part of that, uh, as I've just been doing some study on that for our deacon study, uh, is to see the way that some of the Levitical um, structures of the Old Testament were carried over right into the church. Right. Right. So you have this high priest, and every congregation would have a high priest, and then the Levites would come and serve him in this way. Uh, and what it does is it runs around the centrality of all of the priests in the Old Testament that was supposed to lead us to Jesus. Right. right. Jesus is the fulfillment of the totality of the priest in the Old Testament. And now there's a priesthood of all believers in the church. Uh, and it seems as though the New Testament very rarely uh, uses priestly language for individuals. Paul speaks of his priestly ministry there. Typically, it's the entirety of the church right. and Christ being that singular high priest. Uh, so, yeah, there's been lots of ways that language has been misused and misapplied through church history. Uh, and so we just have to go back to and say, okay, what's the best way to put this together from the scriptures? All right. I only have one more. Yeah, go ahead. So how do we deal with the term father as it is applied in Catholicism? Yeah. Um, so, again, thinking about the hierarchy. So when I talked about the description from 2nd, 3rd century, that certainly continued through the Middle Ages up right. into the Reformation period. Uh, and there was a great change in the Reformation. Now, some Protestant denominations, so Anglican churches, some of those are evangelical Anglican and others are, are, are not, mm-hmm. um, have retained some of that hierarchy today. Presbyterian church has a kind of hierarchy that there is a presbytery that sits over and above multiple uh, local congregations. Uh, the free church movement or the Baptist churches were far more congregational in their polity. So there's there's a lot to be thought through that. But just going back to the question about the Catholic church, I think it's a misapplication of the term of father um, because of the veneration and the authority that is vested in that person. Right. All the way up to the Pope, Papa, right? Father, mm-hmm. um, and the authority that he has, right? So we would argue this is what makes the Protestant Reformation important and uh, Protestant churches different, is that our authority is found in the scriptures alone, right? In the word of God alone. Uh, there is certainly ministry that is done by tradition and history. We learn from history, we learn from tradition, right. but our authority is always the word of God applied to us by the spirit of God in the church of God today. Um, and that's very different than the authority uh, and even the grace that is invested in various leaders in the Catholic Church. Yeah, so that that's what I was getting at, is that I think that the way it is applied in the Catholic Church replaces God mm-hmm. because the the congregation goes to the Father mm-hmm. for the Father as as in the human man yeah. in the church for forgiveness of sins, you know, and then that Father gives them something to do in reference to their sins being forgiven versus, you know, going straight to God, the father who is the only one who can mm-hmm. forgive sins. Yeah. No. So, I mean, certainly the, the Pope is called one of his many titles is the vicar of Christ right. on earth, right? Yeah. He is the replacement of Christ on earth. Uh, that's the Holy spirit, right? Yeah. And it's the Holy spirit that came that the father and son sent to be with his people. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is why, Again, we can't put our hope and our trust in men. That's right. Our hope and trust is in 
God, the God-man Jesus Christ, and those who are faithful to him, those who are faithful leaders in the church, will always be pointing the finger. Uh, they'll be pointing people back to Jesus right. uh, as, as the one who has full authority. So let's move on to another um, point of conflict. <laughs> All right, so in chapter 12 starts out um, with Miriam and Aaron speaking against Moses. So uh, verse 1 reads, Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Why did Miriam and Aaron have an issue with Moses marrying a Cushite woman? First of all, we don't know uh, anything really about this Cushite woman, so that's right. the only description uh, that we have there. It's possible uh, that it could be Zippor, could be the same wife uh, that G- that Moses had in the book of Exodus. Uh, in a passage like Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we see that Cush and uh, Midian are actually in parallel, so it could be describing the same thing. But typically, Cush is associated with Ethiopia, right? right? And so it seems that this is a second wife that Moses had, uh, and it could be uh, an issue of covenant, could be an issue of race, could be an issue of ethnicity, uh, something that is there. Whatever the case may be, we see that um, Miriam and Aaron come and oppose Moses uh, for marrying this woman. Um, And this is just one of the things that we see throughout the book of Numbers, where there are people who are asserting themselves uh, to positions of authority. And here, Miriam and Aaron do that, and Miriam uh, results in in having leprosy uh, as a result of that. Korah is going to do the same thing as he tries to assert himself as a priest. Uh, And when that happens, it's never good. Uh, We saw that with Nadab and Abihu, that as they tried to encroach upon the presence of God, God's fire... um, smote them. The, right, the yeah. King James says that it, it destroyed them uh, because of, of their sinfulness. So uh, I think that's part of the theme of the book of Numbers. And then more particularly, it seems as though this woman and just her background was something that uh, Miriam Aaron didn't like. Right. And let's take a look at chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So I have two questions here. First, why did Korah rise up against Moses? Yeah, so if we keep reading, and we see in chapter 16, Uh, In verse 8, this is what it says. It says, verse 8, And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. So here we see it's not just Korah who is a Levite, but multiple sons of Levi. Mm -hmm. Is it too small thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? So going back, we remember that um, the firstborn sons were replaced by the Levites, Mm -hmm. and the Levites being brought near were given a great place of honor to serve in the household of God. But now they're trying to go further, right? right? And they're actually encroaching upon the priesthood. Verse 10 says that he has brought you near and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you, and would you seek the priesthood also? I think that is when the light goes on, right? Right. They were trying to be just like Aaron and the sons of Aaron who had access and authority to stand at the altar of God. Right. They had already been brought near compared to the rest of the congregation, but they wanted to go further. Mm. Uh, and this is why I think Levi is, or the sons of Levi and Korah are trying to assert themselves here. Right. 
So the second question I have is when Moses asks, why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Is there somewhere else we've heard this type of language? Yeah, tell me a little bit more what you're thinking there. So it reminded me of Isaiah 14, 12, 15, Mm -hmm. um, when Lucifer was saying that he was going to exalt himself above the Father, above Mm -hmm. God. And it it just seemed like a parallel. You know what it really seems like? It seems like when we get prideful Mm -hmm. and we believe that we are deserving of something that we're not, Mm -hmm. um, that we will try and assert ourselves into positions that we don't belong in. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely right, uh, the way that pride works in our heart. And I think we could certainly say that one of the motivating factors for Korah and Levites was pride. Right. right? They're trusting themselves. I mean, isn't it the same pride uh, that Adam had? Mm, right? Yeah. Adam, who is trying to assert himself to be like God. Right. right. If you eat of this fruit, Eve, Adam, you will be like God. Right. That always seems to be the temptation where we rely on ourselves, puff up ourselves, trust in ourselves to exalt ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that is a, a satanic sort of thing. Um, Isaiah 14, we'll have to look at that to see what's being described there. So the language, it's interesting. I mean, it's just the way that our minds work, right? We read one passage and it reminds us of another. Right. That just tells us, okay, our minds are being renewed by Scripture and we're going back and forth in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the, the order there is that in Numbers, we haven't seen Isaiah 14 yet. Right. If Isaiah 14 is talking about Lucifer, it's picking up something from earlier mm-hmm. uh, and not the reverse. Right, yeah. Right? So uh, I think we've seen some of these actions before, um, but I would probably start with seeing like a Nadab and Abihu and Adam mm. uh, before moving to, to Isaiah. Yeah. I think the only reason why I did that is because even though Isaiah comes after, mm-hmm. Lucifer's act was before. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um I'll just have to wait till we get to Isaiah 14 to, to answer more on that. <laughs> yeah. In chapter 25, we read about Baal worship. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of all the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So why was God so angry? It's helpful here just to see what happened in chapters 22 through 24. Right. Right. So they have come to the place where they're going to be sitting and waiting to go into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the place where um, Moses himself strikes the rock for the second time. Right. Yeah. He is told that he's not going to go into the promised land. Mm -hmm. This is the place where um, Balaam shows up. Right. Right. So uh, with his donkey, uh, and he is um, hired by Balak. Uh, to pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. And, of course, that can't happen, right? right? Because Balaam's a strange character. Like, he speaks truth even though his heart is false, right? right? We know his heart is false because of some of the things that the New Testament says about him. And later it will describe, I think it's in Numbers 30, uh, that he will be killed because of his wickedness, mm. right? But it looks as though in chapters 22 through 24 that he is faithful in as much as to only say, only to pronounce a blessing on uh, the nation, right? right? And so Balaam kind of takes him to different positions, different mountains, because perhaps the thought was that from different places there might be different blessings or curses, right? Right. But throughout that, 
Balaam only pronounces blessing on the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. But it seems as though behind the scenes, Balaam says to Balak, but if they sin, their God might be angry with them and might punish them and might be effective for you. So what happens in chapter 25 is that in close proximity um, to Balak uh, and the daughters here of this area, um, the men of Israel begin to take on the daughters uh, from Moab. Right? And so uh, sexual immorality, fornication begins to take place here. And this is why God is so angry. Mm. Because what God had said in the law was that they were not to have any of these relations or to uh, cohort with, with any of these women. And certainly uh, sex outside of marriage as well. I mean, all of these pieces are stoking the fires of God's righteous wrath. Right. right? And so this is where the anger comes in. But it goes even worse than that, right? Because we see in, in verse 6 of chapter 25, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this man brings this woman in close proximity to the holy place of God in front of the priests of God, right. which tells me, if nothing else, what are the Levites doing? Right, yeah. The Levites are the ones to be protecting. They're the ones who took up their swords against their brothers back in Exodus 32. And it seems as though they have failed to teach the people and to keep the people holy out in the camp and the congregation. Right. Right. And so, in this case, Phineas, who is a son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the high priest, he sees it, he rises, leaves the congregation, takes his spear in his hand. Verse 8 says, He went after the man of Israel into the chamber. He pierces them both, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Earlier in Numbers, it says that if Levi did what they're supposed to do, the plague would not affect the people. Right. But now the plague has come because they haven't done what they've done. But this priest comes, and as he comes, he purifies the camp by Mm -hmm. this means of atonement and establishes a covenant of Levi with the priests and the Levites there. And the result is the people are purified and God is propitiated um, because um, the wrath has now been poured out, right? And it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, this is how the people of God invite the anger of God through their covenant breaking. And their only hope then is for a priest to do what a priest does And ultimately, this leads us further down the storyline to see that we who are sinful people of God, who are not pure and clean of ourselves, our only hope is that there would be a priest who comes and purifies us and puts to death the wickedness in the world and in us. Right. So some people would say that God's judgment was too harsh. What Mm -hmm. would we say to that? Yeah, I think Numbers is an incredible book to see the holiness of God upon sin, the wrath of God upon sin. Um, Right? I mean, his treatment of sin is perfect right right our treatment of sin is not yeah right and so chances are we have too light weight of view of god mm-hmm. his holiness and his wrath right. right numbers helps us to to see that in numbers of ways but notice when we see wherever the the wrath of god breaks out in numbers it also comes with the mercy of god right numbers is some of the most merciful things that we see in the entirety of the book entirety of the Bible, right? When we think about John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? right? Well, this is just after uh, it describes that he will be lifted up on a pole like the serpent in the desert, Mm. right? Which is in Numbers 21. Right. Numbers 21 describes how because of the people's complaining and grumbling, we see the fact that God sends serpents to them, 
as an act of judgment. And in the same moment that he brings judgment, he also brings salvation. Right. Right. And so God's character is always going to be revealed in mercy and justice, in just judgment and salvation. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Right. If we only look at his wrath and his anger in numbers, we miss the totality of the mercy and grace that is also there. Wow. So as we finish up numbers, is there anything else to remember in this book? Yeah, so I think just historically, again, this is the book that gets the people uh, from the wilderness uh, into the promised land. Or maybe I should say it's the book that explains how the people get into the place of God uh, through the detour of the wilderness, right? Because of their grumbling, the first generation misses out, Mm -hmm. and they have to wait for 40 years that are there. And in that process of being in the wilderness, it actually serves for us today as a reminder of our own condition, right? We who are in covenant with God, we who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, have not yet entered into the promised land. Right. And in this wilderness period, there are temptations to grumble, and there are opportunities to trust, mm. right? And we are walking this path as well from Mount, not Sinai, but Mount Zion, mm-hmm. until the day when we see it face to face, Right? And so the actions that are taking place in the wilderness here are very much like what we are experiencing today. Right. And the more that we read this, we see, again, God's holy character that prompts us to be holy. We see his mercy and his grace, which gives us courage and comfort. Uh, and it teaches us more and more of who God is. Wow. This concludes today's discussion of Numbers. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.